The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born Francois Marie Arouet in 1694 in Paris, France, the son of a respectable but not particularly eminent lawyer. By the time he died at the age of 83, he was widely regarded as one of the greatest French writers in history, a distinction he still holds today. We know him by his pen name, Voltaire, and the stories of his life are at least as fascinating as the razor-sharp words he committed to the page. Our look at Voltaire, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Voltaire, the man in exile, the vagabond, the man known for his wit, the man known for his masterpiece, Candide, playwright, pamphleteer, scientist, historian, philosopher, visitor of royal courts, playwright, visitor of nearly every distinguished figure of his age. A lot to talk about with Voltaire. We'll get to all of that coming up later in the show. But first, let's start with an email. Hi, Jack and company. (laughs) The interns enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Email says, I've just started listening to the podcast in the last few weeks. I cleaned for a living at local schools in rural New South Wales in Australia, but love to keep my mind active. I usually am cleaning desks while listening to your literary banter. I've compiled a general reading list from the smattering of shows I've listened to so far. One, Dickens, but no more than five, wink, as per your algorithm, Jack. (laughs) Two, Alice Monroe, loved that episode. Three, not Don Quixote. Thanks, Mike, for the research there. (laughs) Her general reading list has some knots on it. Four, The Old Man in the Sea is scheduled for reading in 2040. Five, Moby Dick. I'm 31, so according to your advice, I'm the perfect age to appreciate it. Six, Chekhov. Loved the Lady with the Little Dog episode. Seven, Kafka. Loved a hunger artist. Eight, Don Juan or Don Juan. Nine, and of course, Tolstoy. So thank you for your podcast. It's given me so many books. Or it's given so... (laughs) Let me try that again. It's given so many books personalities that make me want to know more. A forever grateful reader, Jane. Oh, my Jane. What a fantastic email. As you know, I collect these little vignettes of people who listen to the podcast in various settings. We went on a trip to Mongolia. We've taken walks through the jungle or those lonely days in the post office in rural Sweden. And now we have a new one. The local schools in rural New South Wales and Australia, where Jane cleans the classrooms and likes to keep her mind active. That is absolutely fantastic. There's something very appealing about cleaning a school. My friend's father had it as his dream job for years. That surprised me at first. Seemed to me like it was repetitive, maybe a little dull. He worked in a factory, in a managerial position, and I thought, wouldn't that be better? It seemed like it would, and yet... 
He would always say that he was looking forward to the day when he would partially retire and clean schools. And then, as I got a little older, a little wiser, the years went by, I realized why. I realized the attraction of wanting to have that as a job. It's a good place, a school. There are a lot of good vibes there. It's a place of learning. You could almost say it's like a church, a secular sort of church, where adults are devoted to educating children, and the children are there to become productive and informed citizens of the world. We shouldn't take it for granted what happens in these schools. Imagine a world where they don't exist. Instead, we have walls filled with educational posters and student work and lockers for students to store their backpacks and lunches, and yes, desks for students to sit in as they encounter the world of mathematics and history and foreign languages and science and literature. And at night, the school gets quiet, hushed, even more like a church now. The lights glow And even though it's quiet, the atmosphere is still there. All those posters, all that homework, all those books on the shelves, all the teachers' lesson plans, all those supplies, those chairs and tables and desks. The school is breathing. The school is at rest. The school had a day full of laughter and maybe some tears, and lots and lots of teaching and learning, and now the activity and chaos, the hustle and bustle have subsided, and the building exhales for the night and settles in to get some rest. But before it does, it gets a good cleaning by a lonely, saint-like person who wants to make sure the school is ready to face the next day, and who travels from room to room, turning on lights as needed, like an explorer, lighting up the corridors in a cave, bringing the mops and rags and disinfectant. And that explorer, that worker bee, that saint-like cleaner, has a job that can be lonely, yes, but it can also be reflective, meditative, uncomplicated. There's room in the mind to think and imagine and absorb and discover, and to do a necessary job, and to feel the accomplishment of getting it done. I cannot tell you how glad I am to know that this podcast, this humble little thing, the the little podcast that could, is there in that school while it's being cleaned with our listener Jane. Thank you for the email, Jane, and thank you for helping those kids and that school down there in New South Wales. I hope you continue to enjoy the show. We'll be back with some news of the week, and then the mighty Voltaire after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. News of the week. Man, oh man, it has been a crazy week here in America. Every week is crazy now, it seems, especially here in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. Crazy Town. I hardly know where to begin. So let's start with this one, which is not from D.C., but from my beloved home state of Wisconsin. Here's an article that caught my eye. Headline, Mosquitoes Force Suspect to Surrender in Wisconsin. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Some mosquitoes forcing a suspect to surrender. What are they doing? Walking around? They're six feet tall now? Wearing uniforms, packing heat. Here we go. We're back in America's Dairyland. I had a friend with a shirt that said Wisconsin State Bird with a picture of a mosquito on it. That's how bad the mosquitoes were. Except, actually, to be honest, it was a little more pathetic than that. He had gotten the shirt in Minnesota. It had originally said Minnesota's State Bird, and his mom had crossed out the word Minnesota and written Wisconsin with a black magic marker. But... It got the point across. We didn't have a lot of resources where I grew up, but we were resourceful. A magic marker could cure a lot of failures, just as barbed wire and duct tape cured other types of failures as well. On to the article. Mosquitoes forced suspect to surrender in Wisconsin. Campbellsport, Wisconsin. Pesky mosquitoes brought a high-speed police chase to an end in Wisconsin's Fond du Lac County. Here we go. We are in good old Fond du Lac County in Campbellsport. In fact, named for an early settler called Stuart Campbell. Campbellsport is a thriving village. In 2000, according to the census, there were 1,913 people in Campbellsport. In 2010, just 10 years later, there were 2,016 people. An increase of 103, and they crossed the 2,000-person barrier. Now, I really felt at home. I've never been to Campbellsport, but I could picture what that must have been like. For half of my youth, my town had 883 people. And then the new census came, and suddenly we had 1,022. The sign changed. We hit four digits separated us from some of the other towns nearby, gave us a a bit of reason to puff out our chests. That was the first sign you saw when you came to my town. Four digits. You saw that sign with the population. 
Then you saw the sign celebrating our tug-of-war team, which was very successful. And then you saw the sign at Goodwick's Grocery, which advertised guns and cold beer. That was our town. <laughs> and it kind of went downhill from there. The village of Campbellsport has a motto. It takes a village. My town did not have a motto. Not sure why. Campbellsport's leading citizen was a man named Ignatius Klotz, who was a politician and farmer. We also did not have an Ignatius Klotz. Thurl Scadam was maybe as close as we came to that, but hey, we only had half the population of Campbellsport. There aren't Ignatius Klotzes just popping up everywhere. Not every town can be so lucky. Now, here's what I like about Campbellsport. The name Campbell's Port, a great port city up there with Newport or Portsmouth. And sure, it's not going to have an ocean, but in Wisconsin, we do have the Great Lakes, a couple of them, and we do have some mighty rivers. So I took a look at the description of Campbell's Port to see what wonderful port that Mr. Stewart had stuck his name to back in 1902. And the description says, Campbellsport is located on Wisconsin State Highway 67 between U.S. Route 41 and U.S. Route 45. What? No body of water? Where's the port there? That's all highway. It's not on Lake Michigan? Turns out, Lake Michigan is 40 miles away. Lake Superior is not even in the conversation. 268 miles away. In another state, even. Even Lake Winnebago. Moderate but respectable Lake Winnebago is 15 miles away. Kind of far to be a port. 15-mile port kind of defeats the purpose of a port. Kind of defies the definition. And the rivers don't help us either. It's over an hour to the Wisconsin River and three hours to the Mississippi, and that's traveling today on today's highways. In 1902, would have been a fall day probably, maybe more days away from the Mississippi. Stuart Campbell, what were you thinking? Campbell's Port? What port were you, were you imagining? One that you had seen on your journey to this place, or one you hoped you would someday build, or that would magically appear? Were you hoping the glaciers would return and somehow a mighty body of water would be carved, just show up among the prairies and cornfields and dry, dry, dry ground where you settled your town and called it Campbell's Port? I zoomed in, I went to Google Maps, looking for any indication of the port they were talking about. I zoomed in and zoomed in and zoomed in and finally found some water. A speck of blue on the map. A mill pond. The Campbellsport Mill Pond. And a thread of a river trailing through at the very edge. That could be a port. Or maybe it was once... Once upon a time, I don't see one there now. I see Lowers Meat Services and the Campbellsport Fire Department and the Campbellsport Wastewater Utility. Let's get back to the article. 
The mosquitoes are quite plentiful lately in central Wisconsin thanks to recent rain and flooding, but they bugged one man so much he preferred to be arrested by police. (laughs) Here we go. How interesting. Article says, It all started when a man allegedly stole three bottles of Jägermeister on Tuesday at a Piggly Wiggly grocery store in a Campbellsport, Wisconsin, and was captured on surveillance video. Three bottles of Jägermeister at a Piggly Wiggly. This might be the most Wisconsin crime of all the Wisconsin crimes I've heard, even more than the Dairy Princess killing the homecoming queen. Three bottles of Jägermeister, two bottles in one hand, one bottle in the other, and out you go. (laughs) Enough Jägermeister for a party. Those poor suckers at the Piggly Wiggly, well, they won't miss it, will they? They're rich. They're rolling in it at the Piggly Wiggly. Oh, man, does this story make me miss home? My grandparents used to have a police scanner in their living room. They listened to it for just this kind of occasion. The squelch. The noise from the police officer, walkie-talkies, cutting through the static. I can hear them now. (coughs) We're going to investigate a robbery on the corner of Ladwig and Main. (coughs) And my grandparents would nod at one another. The Piggly Wiggly, they would murmur. Probably another Jägermeister theft. Next paragraph. Here's where the story gets strange. A journalistic curiosity. There's some unexplained mysteries in this story. Here's one of them. Manager Kevin Harvey saw him load a cart with more than $1,400 worth of alcohol. He recognized him because it was allegedly the fourth time he stole from his store, according to WDJT-CBS. $1,400 worth of alcohol? For three bottles of Jägermeister? Is there a run on Jägermeister I haven't heard about? A shortage? Is this some kind of post-apocalyptic world where brandy and Jägermeister are not available to the good people of Wisconsin? I googled Jägermeister. I googled, how much does Jägermeister cost And Google, God bless it, Google added in some additional words in their auto-suggestion feature. I typed, how much does Jägermeister cost? And Google filled out the sentence, how much does Jägermeister cost at Walmart? That's That's the sentence on everyone's mind. That's where you buy Jägermeister. You get it at Walmart. And of course, it does not cost $500 a bottle. It costs about $15 a bottle. That's the mystery. $1,400 worth of alcohol. The only thing I can think, read the story many times, the only thing I can think is that there must have been a whole cart filled with bottles. Then, manager Kevin Harvey recognizes the thief, calls out, and the thief just grabs three bottles of Jägermeister and runs and flees the store. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no time to push this cart full of $1,400 of alcohol I was planning to walk out with, but I'll just grab these three. Guess what, crooks? 
If the manager recognizes you and calls out, don't grab three bottles and flee the store. Just set the cart to the side and walk out with nothing in your hands. That's when you think, oh, shoot, the jig's up. I got to get out of here before I'm busted for shoplifting. I actually haven't taken anything yet, so I should be all good. I will just walk out. But what will I drink tonight if I do? That sweet, sweet Jaeger would slide down so easy. Let me just take three bottles. See you later, Piggly Wiggly Manager Kevin Harvey. Ha ha, you flatfoot pigger. <laughs> Eat my dust. Manager Kevin Harvey chased him out of the store. We're back to the article now. Chased him out of the store, but the getaway driver, John Wilson. Ooh, <laughs> John Wilson, so close to being me. No relation, as far as I know. The getaway driver, John Wilson, drove off and sparked a three-mile chase. Now we're really off. A high-speed chase in Fond du Lac County. This is getting exciting, but wait. The excitement continues. The next paragraph is, The thief tucked and rolled out of the vehicle during the chase. Tucked and rolled. Tucked and rolled. Look, these are highways we're talking about here. Tucking and rolling is a serious endeavor. He did not want to be caught. Having stolen three bottles of Jägermeister, I wonder if he had the bottle of Jägermeister with him when he tucked and rolled. At least one bottle, right? If you were jumping out of a car... You're going to be tucking and rolling anyway, skidding and sliding across the pavement and into the ditch. Well, you could just sneak a bottle right underneath your chest, maybe under your shirt, and protect it as you fall and you roll, keeping it carefully off the ground, preventing it from breaking, and then when you're dealing with all your scrapes and bruises, your battered bones and bloody skin, you'd have a little of that sweet, sweet yegi to help melt the pain away. This story, <laughs> this story is already incredible. We're about five paragraphs in. We've got $1,400 shopping cart full of alcohol. We've got three bottles of Jägermeister, a getaway car, and a thief who's tucked and rolled. Well, the cops apparently just let that guy go. They don't even know his name. Tuck, roll, home free wonder if the police thought he was dead anyway or wounded enough that he wouldn't get far. Now, they're in pursuit of the driver, John Wilson, and the car and the contraband. Couple of couple of bottles of Jägermeister still in there, one suspects. Article says, however, Wilson then parked and ran into a cornfield. Police surrounded the area, but mosquitoes were on the prowl. <laughs> mosquitoes on the prowl. They were not flying. They were on the prowl. Just creeping through the brush, looking for 'er ne'er-do-wells, waiting for their 'er ne'er-do-well prey. Back to the article. It was so bad, police were looking for bug spray for themselves, said Chief Thomas Dornbrook of the Campbellsport Police Department. The good... Thomas Dornbrook, enter the chief, upstanding citizen. 
Where's the suspect? In a cornfield. I'm going in. I'm in hot pursuit. Oh, God, just let me find some bug spray first, and then I'll go in. <laughs> Article set. Here's a quote from Dornbrook. Quote, as soon as the sheriff's department arrived, that's the first thing I asked for. If he could give me some spray, because it was crazy. Dornbrook said, I love Chief Thomas Dornbrook. I just love this. Have you seen those movies where the police are on the case? Then the sheriff or the FBI shows up and suddenly the locals have to explain what's happening and they say, they lower their voice and they look real serious and they say, we've got him apprehended in the building. We've got it surrounded. Be careful. He's heavily armed. He's asking for a million dollars in unmarked bills and a helicopter to take him to the Miami airport. It's a hostage hostage situation. That's what they say, right? And then they have a turf war, but not good. Chief Thomas Dornbrook. The sheriff's office shows up and he says, the first thing I ask for, what do you want? What do you need, chief? Assistance? Backup? Actually, no. Can you give me some spray? Because it is crazy. Article says, an hour later, Wilson put up his hands and surrendered, saying he couldn't stand the swarming mosquitoes. An hour. <laughs> it took an hour. They just waited him out. Let's let the prowling mosquitoes handle this for us. He won't last long in there in that cornfield. Then we hear more from Dornbrook. He says, quote, when we handcuffed him, he asked us to wipe his forehead because he had 15 to 20 mosquitoes on his forehead at that time, Dornbrook said. Oh, man. <laughs> they put the cuffs on him, and what does he say? I want to talk to my lawyer? No. Or please tell my wife and kids I'm sorry? No. I can help you get the other guy, the thief? No. He says, hey, guys, would you just take a look at my forehead? Could you wipe it for me? Those things are just driving me crazy. An hour. He couldn't last longer than that. Prison was preferable to another minute out there with the mosquitoes. Article ends. Police are still looking for the Jägermeister thief, but Wilson was charged with fleeing officers, retail theft, and obstructing an officer. What a story. It's a very different world from the one we're about to enter with Voltaire doing all of his Voltaire-like things. But you know what? I like both worlds. I like the world of Voltaire mixing with high society, writing world masterpieces, the world of Paris and Europe in the 18th century. He embodies that world. He's maybe the greatest exemplar of the literary world of Europe in the 18th century. One of them. Certainly. But I also like the world of Campbellsport, Wisconsin in September 2018. The world of the good chief Thomas Dornbrook, who asks for bug spray because it's crazy. I can imagine the Jägermeister getaway driver subdued, his moment of adventure over, his hands cuffed behind his back, asking humbly for a wipe of the forehead to remove the... 15 or 20 insects 
actively engaged in draining the blood from his brain case. Please, sir, he says, I'm terribly sorry for my offense to society and to the Piggly Wiggly. I know I don't deserve it, but if you could see your way to have pity on a poor soul and wipe my forehead clear of these angry beasts. And Chief Thomas Thornbrook, in my imagination, sighs and thinks through why he became a cop in the first place. All the long hours, he didn't expect those. All the danger and drama, he's given so much to this job. And here's a criminal, a lowlife, who has caused him a night of misery. Where was the sympathy for me, he thinks. It's crazy here. And I had no spray, no spray. Where was the mercy for me when you robbed that piggly wiggly and brought me out here to the very cornfield where the mosquitoes prowl? It is crazy. And I had no spray. But then he thinks through what it means to be a public servant, to protect and defend, not to punish, that comes later, but to protect and defend. There's room for mercy, just as there's room for toughness and selflessness and commitment to what's right. He lifts his hand and frees his prisoner from the torment of 15 to 20 blood-sucking tiny monsters. It's a small gesture, yes, but it is what holds a town like Campbellsport together. It may not be Paris, the city of lights, but it's Campbellsport, respectable village. Campbellsport, where it takes a village, my friends. It takes a village. Voltaire, after this. Much of Voltaire's early life was spent at a prestigious high school across from the Sorbonne, where he studied with Jesuits and received a wide-ranging education. Another part of his early life was spent fending off the entreaties of his father, who urged him to choose a practical profession. Voltaire didn't like his father much. His mother died when he was young, and Voltaire insisted that his actual father was somebody else altogether, a songwriter, instead of the low-level ministerial attorney that his father was. His father wanted him to find a profession like the law. Voltaire tried a couple of times, mostly to please his father or perhaps get him off his back, to trick him. Zozo, which was what Francois-Marie's youthful nickname was, told his father that he was working as an assistant to a notary instead. The job was imagined. He didn't show up for work at all and spent his time writing poetry. His father learned the truth and sent him away from Paris to study law in earnest in Normandy. 
but this only seemed to set Voltaire's determination that he would be a writer, not a lawyer. All he had to do was figure out how to support himself through his writing or through something else, and he would be free. Voltaire, before he was famous, (laughs) in fact, at this point in the story, he hasn't even adopted the name Voltaire yet, is a fascinating creature. He was writing essays and historical studies. Among the people who knew him, he was already well-known for his ability to diversify and for his wit, which made him popular. Among the low-level aristocratic families with whom he mingled, his father got him a job as a secretary for the French ambassador in the Netherlands, where he fell in love with a Protestant refugee, a French woman who was known as Pimpette. The ambassador found out about this affair and was scandalized. Voltaire had to return to Paris. But through it all, he kept writing. He had all of his life a few core tendencies, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, tolerance of intellectual views, religious freedom, and a willingness to challenge authority. Even at this young age, before he had any sort of reputation or name, with his fortunes very precarious, he was willing to criticize the government or other people in power. He was sentenced to prison twice and sentenced to exile in England. He spent 11 months in the Bastille in a windowless cell with walls 10 feet thick. Actually, let's back up. The circumstances of his arrest are worth noting. He had written a series of satirical poems culminating in what an early 20th century biographer referred to as, quote, violent libels. Basically, he was accusing a duke of incest. And then, quote, he was then inveigled by a spy named Beauregard into giving a real or burlesque confession, end quote. Voltaire was also drunk at the time when he gave this confession, which probably helped with the inveigling. Years later, he saw this spy, this Beauregard, at a party given by the Ministry of War, and Voltaire is reported to have said, quote, I knew that spies were being paid, but I did not know until now that their reward was to dine at the minister's table, end quote. The minister said nothing at this insult. Nobody said anything that night. But the next day, Voltaire was riding in his carriage. When the carriage was suddenly stopped, His nemesis Beauregard appeared and dragged Voltaire out of the carriage and beat him. It's not the last time something like this would happen to poor Voltaire, who spoke his mind. In in 1725, he was insulted by an august figure, the Chevalier de Rohan. Rohan taunted Voltaire about changing his name, and Voltaire, Voltaire, Voltaire replied, My name will be honored, but you will dishonor yours. Rowan was furious, as our biographer puts it, quote, Voltaire was insulted by the Chevalier de Rohan, replied with his usual sharpness of tongue, and shortly afterwards, when dining with the Duke of Sully, was called out and bastinadoed by the Chevalier's hirelings. Rohan himself looking on, end quote, boy. Does that one hit home? If I've been bastinadoed by the Chevalier's hirelings once, I've been bastinadoed by the hirelings a thousand times. It's hard to dine with the Duke of Sully without constantly looking over my shoulder. Three months after the bastinadoing, Voltaire challenged Rohan to a duel. Rohan accepted, 
But he had powerful connections, and on the morning that the duel was supposed to take place, Voltaire was arrested and sent again to the Bastille. He only stayed two weeks this time. He suggested that they should send him to England instead, and the authorities agreed because nobody knew what to do with Voltaire. They just didn't want him around. He wouldn't stop insulting people. He couldn't. Everyone laughed. Someone turned red, and they went after Voltaire for revenge. Better to have a guy like that out of the country altogether. Once Voltaire was complaining, after he had been beaten, he was complaining about his bruises to the regent. You are a poet, and you have been beaten, said the regent. Such is the natural order of things. <laughs> but I've jumped ahead. Let's go back to his first imprisonment at the Bastille, because when he got out after these 11 months of imprisonment, he changed it. This is when he changed his name to Voltaire. There are some different theories for why he chose the name Voltaire. I think the most plausible are a couple. There's a couple that I think are plausible. One is that it's an anagram of his actual name, plus the initials I and V, which is a reference to his own youth. It's the Latinized version of his name and the the younger. There's also a theory that his nickname was Le Petit Volontaire, which means determined little thing. And he shortened that to Voltaire. The other thing that happened when he got out of prison for the first time, one of his plays was produced. It was a smash hit and a critical favorite. It made him some money and a lot of accolades, earned him a lot of accolades as well. Both France and England awarded him medals for the play. From then on, he was famous and he didn't really have to worry about money, though he did not exactly live an easy life after that, as his taste for satire and direct criticism would land him in trouble again and again. We're up to 1727 now. Voltaire is 33. He goes to England in exile. He's famous as a playwright, an author, and a general thinker, and a wit. He meets everyone important in England, including writers like Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift. He admires England's constitutional monarchy, which seems to him to foster more freedom of thought and expression than the absolutist governments in France, where he's constantly in trouble with the censors. And when in England, he develops an interest in Shakespeare. Remember, we're only about 100 years into Shakespeare's legacy, and Shakespeare was not the world-famous figure, the universally known figure he is today. He wasn't well-known in Europe at that time. And Voltaire watches some Shakespeare and says, essentially, this is somewhat rough, somewhat crude, kind of all over the place. It's not nearly as polished as the classical dramas that we put on stage in France. But boy, the action and the depth here is something that can be learned from. And then, when so he imports that into his own plays. And then when Shakespeare became more popular in France, Voltaire to the other way. He retreated back to the classical style, arguing against the barbarity of the new Shakespeareans. That was kind of Voltaire in a nutshell, zigging while everyone else zags. My guess is that that was why freedom was so important to him. He knew that his own genius was to be the critic, and by that I don't mean a literary critic. He was producing original works. I mean that he, his genius, his tendency, his personality was to be the gadfly the dissenter, the one who stands up to the masses just as he stands up to authority. 
He was clear-eyed and fearless. That was how he was going to view the world. If everyone believed A, his genius and his proclivities drove him to say, hang on, A has some real problems here that nobody else is talking about. And then if everyone moved on to B, he'd say, you fools. Nobody sees B for what it actually is. You probably would have been better off sticking with A. A man with that kind of vision is an irritant. Combined with Voltaire's wit, the irritant becomes something stronger. No person in power, no person with any kind of power is going to stand by while Voltaire's 15 to 20 mosquitoes land on his forehead. They will wipe him off. After England, Voltaire also figured out a way to make a lot of money. To raise money, the French government had put together a lottery. Voltaire and a partner of his figured out that the math didn't work right. And they put together a syndicate, and through the syndicate bought up all the tickets and made a killing over and over. Not just once. (laughs) They kept winning. It took two years for the government to catch up to them. It didn't help that Voltaire kept writing phrases on the backs of winning tickets, mocking the government and the officials for being so stupid. Finally, the government realized that they were paying out too many winners, and the winners were all actually Voltaire and his associates, and so the program was shut down. But Voltaire was now rich, and he never had to worry about money for the rest of his life. Let's take a moment to admire Voltaire's wit. Here are a few of his famous sayings. Quote, I have only ever made one prayer to God, a very short one. O Lord, make my enemies ridiculous. And God granted it. Here's another. Governments need to have both shepherds and butchers. (laughs) I like that. Love truth, he said, but pardon error. It is dangerous to be right in matters where established men are wrong. That one probably hit close to home for the man who was imprisoned and exiled for much of his life. There were truths which are not for... Let's see, let me start that one over. There are truths which are not for all men, nor for all times. A witty saying proves nothing. Such then is the human condition that to wish greatness for one's country is to wish harm to one's neighbors. Very profound. The secret of being a bore, according to Voltaire, is to tell everything. And here's one, super famous. If God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Here's one that's often attributed to Voltaire, but he actually did not say, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That actually didn't come until much later. What he said was, think for yourselves and let others enjoy the privilege to do so too. Same sentiment, but not the famous words that we often attribute to Voltaire. Illusion is the first of all pleasures. Hmm. Let's do a few more. Let us read and let us dance. These two amusements will never do any harm to the world. Life is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. You can see some of his joie de vivre in these. The more I read, the more I acquire, the more certain I am that I know nothing. Shades of Socrates there. 
Common sense, he said, is not so common. Sounds like Oscar Wilde. Love truth, but pardon error. It is forbidden to kill, therefore all murderers are punished, unless they kill in large numbers and to the sound of trumpets. So true. Here's one I like. God is a comedian playing to an audience that is too afraid to laugh. Man, I don't know where I am going, but I am on my way. Let's do a handful more, just a few more. Every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. Prejudices are what fools use for reason. What is history? The lie that everyone agrees on. It is not enough to conquer. One must learn to seduce. We could go on and on. There must be a hundred fantastic quotes just from Candide, which we'll get to in a moment. Now let's admire the breadth of Voltaire's success and the high energy with which he pursued it. He wrote 2,000 books and pamphlets and an estimated 20,000 letters. Some days he never left his bed, writing and dictating for 18 hours at a stretch, fueled by incredible amounts of caffeine, some say between 40 and 60 cups of coffee per day. His plays continued to be successful, and his essays on politics, government, literature, religion, science, England, you name it. His books were burnt and banned as he fled from country to country, one step ahead of the censor. He admired Sir Isaac Newton and was one of his early adopters, following his theories, developing experiments of his own, learning all about optics and writing personal stories that he'd heard from Newton's niece in London, including a pretty famous one about Sir Isaac and an apple falling from the tree, which Voltaire was one of the first to write about. Voltaire was an important scientific figure, not for his science so much as for his ability to popularize it. The general public in France was assisted by Voltaire's ability to make Newton accessible and understandable. Voltaire wrote works of history, too. He wrote works of philosophy. He analyzed the Bible. His views were extremely popular and influential. Everyone read him. Everyone learned from him. Everyone was changed by him. History was not the same after Voltaire. Plays were not the same. Poetry, not the same. Attitudes toward government, science, philosophy, and freedom. He also mingled with the greatest figures of his day. Frederick the Great, crown prince of Russia, wrote to him, wanting to make a friendship with him. He moved to Holland and Brussels and then to Berlin, where Frederick, who was now king, hosted him for two weeks. Later, Voltaire went to visit Frederick again, and this time, the French government was behind the visit, hiring Voltaire as a spy. What else? Voltaire, there's so many things, so many things in his life. We're not going to get to all of it. He fell in love with his niece. He moved to Prussia again in 1751. He wrote a work of science fiction, which was mostly satirical. He was writing poetry again. He made friends and then attacked them for the follies of their beliefs. He was accused of theft and forgery. He moved to Switzerland, then bought an estate on the French side of the border where he lived out most of the rest of his life. Now he's in his 60s. We've covered probably 
one-tenth of his movements, one one-hundredth maybe. He meets with Boswell and Adam Smith and Casanova and Edward Gibbon. <laughs> Incredible roster of luminaries. Oh, and Benjamin Franklin, who urged Voltaire to become a Freemason, which he did at the end of his life, although some said he seemed to do it just to please Franklin. I like the old man Voltaire. He was vibrant in his 70s. He set up a watchmaking business and sold watches to Catherine the Great of Russia and King Louis XV. It's so great. Imagine being invited to, to meet the Queen of England and showing up and pulling watches out of your pocket. It's, <laughs> I've made these at my factory on my estate. I'm sure the, the, the leaders probably thought they were being given a gift. But nope, Voltaire said they were for sale, and it worked. The sales were made. That takes some hubris. In his final days, the Catholic Church was eager to visit Voltaire and to try to get a deathbed conversion. If he would only turn to the church, this famous deist, this exploder of religions, this gadfly, famous critic of organized religion, if they could only get him to recant all of that, they could show the power of their religion to the people. So they approached him and urged him to renounce Satan. And Voltaire said, this is no time to be making new enemies. <laughs> Just fantastic. But let's go back to 1759 and the writing of Candide, his masterpiece. Remember that Voltaire was a Newtonian, fully invested in the science and mathematics of Newton. So he did want to meet Leibniz, Newton's rival, for the credit of the invention of calculus. Today we understand and accept that apparently those two both invented calculus simultaneously, independently of one another. But back then... Maybe one felt that it was more important to take sides, and maybe that gave Voltaire a bit of a grudge against Leibniz, although he seems to have been okay and interested in Leibniz, Leibniz's mathematics. But Leibniz was also a philosopher, and he had developed a philosophy of optimism. And it's hard to imagine a fatter, weaker member of the herd for a coyote like Voltaire to feast upon. His critique, Candide, destroyed the philosophy so thoroughly that there were only bones to pick from at the end. Actually, I think the only reason we really know Leibniz's philosophy of optimism today is because of Voltaire's funny, compelling, dramatic takedown of it. To paraphrase Voltaire, if the philosophy of optimism did not exist, Voltaire would have had to invent it. What was it, the philosophy? It can be summarized as the actual world is the best of all possible worlds. Now, you might be thinking, well, if that's the case, what do you say about evil? If it's, Couldn't we imagine a world with a little less evil, even just a little bit? Wouldn't that make an alternative world the best of all possible worlds? That's a perennial problem for defenders of Christianity or for any religion which has a benevolent and omnipotent being at its core. God knows everything and can do everything. So why is there Hitler? Why is there even one hungry person? Why do babies die? 
Why do murderers murder innocent victims? Why can't God stop it? Why doesn't God stop it? Well, the devil. Blame the devil. That's one answer, which kind of glosses over the idea that God is omnipotent. He could stop the devil, couldn't he? Here's where Leibniz comes in. He proposed another solution. It's got five steps. Step one. God has the idea of infinitely many universes. Step two, only one of these universes can actually exist. Step three, God's choices are subject to the principle of sufficient reason. That is, God has reason to choose one thing or another. Four, God is good. Five, therefore, the universe that God chose to exist is the best of all possible worlds. What this really is, is saying, well, God wouldn't have done it any differently because God is good and God can do everything. This has been criticized for its lack of logic by many people, including Bertrand Russell, but Voltaire was the one who lampooned it. His character, Candide, who learns the philosophy of optimism from his mentor, Professor Pangloss, repeats the phrase, we live in the best of all possible worlds again and again, no matter what tragedies befall him or that he witnesses. In Voltaire's hands, we see these logical problems as they play out. Why couldn't God have chosen a better universe? But more than that, we see the problems with believing such a philosophy to be true. When Candide is learning from Pangloss, he isn't holy, he's not spiritually awake. He's viewing the world in an unrealistic way. And we, the readers, sense through Voltaire that Leibniz must be doing so as well. By the end, Candide has suffered a slow and painful disillusionment and a a painful awakening. Wars and earthquakes and everything else have forced on him a kind of new realization. He ends with the thought, we must cultivate our garden. One of the more famous phrases in all of literature. Candide was listed by one of my favorite critics, Martin Seymour Smith, as one of the 100 most influential books ever written. Plenty of people pointed out flaws with Leibniz, but nobody did so with as much panache as Voltaire. That was Voltaire through and through. We might disagree with him if he's turned toward us, if he turns that brain towards something we believe in and attacks it with that razor tongue of his, whether it's religion or government or whatever else we hold dear, we feel exposed, red-faced, irritated. We look for someone to bastinado. But when Voltaire goes after something that we want to go after ourselves, some bit of piety that needs to be brought down a peg, or some hypocrisy that we think deserves exposure and maybe our scorn, Voltaire is our man. He's sharp, he's concise, he's fearless. He is the determined little thing. He is Voltaire. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Remember, you can find us at historyofliterature.com or on Twitter at the Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E Wilson. If you'd like to support the show, you can learn more at patreon.com slash literature and historyofliterature.com slash shop. We'll have Mike Palindrome on soon. Mike's been busy, flooded with work, but he's also getting ready for our Hemingway episode. So subscribe now and tell all your friends. You won't want to miss that one. And you won't want them to miss it either. (sighs) Maybe. (laughs) I don't know who your friends are. I'm assuming they won't want to miss it. Oh, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.